welcome to the Digital Infrastructure Fund podcast. This is a podcast where we're focusing on grantees of the Digital Infrastructure Fund. Digital Infrastructure Fund is a fund set up by multiple funders in order to explore what is digital infrastructure, what does it mean, how can we understand how to better sustain it, how can we understand who is working on it, and so forth. We've had a lot of different interviewees on this podcast so far, and today I am extremely privileged to introduce two more. We have Matthew O'Neill and Stefano Zaccaroli. Matthew is joining us from Canberra, where he is an associate professor of communication at the News and Media Research Center at the University of Canberra. And Stefano is joining us today, and he is a professor as well at Telecom Paris at the Polytechnic Institute of Paris. So I'm very excited to have both of you on today. How are you both doing? Great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks also for the invitation. Excellent. So that was Matthew and Stefano. So now you know their voices. All right. So you had a grant, which was given you by the Digital Infrastructure Grant. Matthew, can you talk a bit about the title of the grant and what it was for? So when we got the grant, it was just the two foundations. We were in the first tranche, right? So 2019, 2020. It was just falling and slowing. The title, I think, was the co-production of digital infrastructure by volunteer projects and firms. So that was our interest to see how these two very different worlds have come together and are working together to produce this new type of resource. Cool. Can you tell me a bit about how you and Stefano began working together? Okay, so the story really began... About 10 years ago, when I started a journal called the Journal of Pay Production, which is a sort of do-it-yourself journal, which incorporates some of the values of pay production, free software, Wikipedia, such as transparency, et cetera, et cetera. And through this journal, I was introduced to Stefano by Biello Coleman, who's a famous academic who's done some work on Debian. And she thought Stefano, who was Debian project leader three times in a row, would be interested. And he thought it was great. And we met like that. And then we decided to do an issue together on work where we did a survey of the Debian project around this issue of are people being paid to produce free software by firms. And we got a fantastic response because we did it with members of the community. It got about 1,500 people responding, which is super high. And based on that, we then worked with a colleague in France called Laure Musili, and we did some more interviews with Debian developers, sort of qualitative interviews, and we and then we heard about this grant that was coming out and we thought, wow, this is a very strange sensation. It was like, it's almost been written for us. This is exactly what we do. It was quite rare for me at the time to have that feeling that, wow, this is amazing. You know? And yeah. it all came together and we applied and I was very fortunate to be able to travel to New York in uh, early 2019 for the first get together and where I got to meet a lot of the other Grantees, some people I already met, like Stuart Geiger, and some people I only knew of by reputation, like Marco, you know. And it was really great. It helped us because we got some really good suggestions about what to look for, you know, like looking at GitHub, for example, but become a huge part of what we do. Looking at email addresses of the committers on GitHub as a proxy for some involvement, you know, that's a big thing. So that's one of the ideas that were workshopped at that unconference, I think they called it, in New York in 2019. And on my part, so I, a professional scientist would say, uh, they come from logics and work mostly in the foreign methods and now in software engineering. And so I'm not a social scientist myself, but they've been involved in Debian for like more than 20 years now. 
And so actually when I met Matthew, it was super interesting for me because we had been in touch with other social scientists like Bella was basically characterized again as a community. And the possibility of actually digging down into a specific topic of how volunteers and actually paid work interact and in and around open source projects like Debian was super interesting for me. Because it's a topic that Debian itself has been discussing for many years, but without any structure, right? So we've seen the strangle of mixing volunteers with paid employees. And this opportunity to study it more as a sort of domain expert was super interesting for me. And I think that there is a lot of really interesting, both for scientists and for, for communities themselves. Excellent. Thank you so much for that context for how you started this grant. I have a lot of questions. So one of them, Matthew, you are more of a researcher, right? You're a social scientist. You've done a lot of different work on the political economy, commons-based peer production. You founded the Journal of Peer Production. When you were looking at how open source software has been co-produced for this grant, how did you decide that Debian was going to be a good analysis, like a good research database to look at? So Debian, we worked on before. Debian was the basis of our work. We did this survey. In fact, Zach and I co-edited the 10th issue of the journal Peer Production, which came out in 2017 around work. And we published the result in sort of a preliminary results of the survey in this issue. And we started talking about, you know, this kind of interest of ours into seeing what the impact of the introduction of professional employees, the kind of norms, the kind of, you know, expectations that you have about work when you're getting paid, what happens when you bring that into free and open software. But we're also interested in seeing whether, you know, the norms of open source were getting into the firm. So that's just one aspect. I'm sure we can talk about the most broader social dimensions later. But so Debian was the base. And I was interested in Debian myself because I wrote a book about governance in online communities. This was in the late 2000s. So I looked at blogs, data, and I took one like archetypal example of each type. And one of them was a data coach for the blogs. Then there was Wikipedia. And then it was for the open source. There was Debian because Debian is unique in that it's maintained its complete autonomy and it's got its own institution. It's got a government structure, which is very robust and they have elections, they have whole induction process, but it's quite fascinating because it's just coming, sort of emerged out of itself and and it's managed to reproduce itself and to grow stronger. And of course, they're now facing big challenges because of the evolution of the software industry and the rise of cloud infrastructure, particularly, which is challenging some of the core principles and the licenses in time. So that's one of the issues that the whole open source world is facing. But yeah, I was always fascinated. And I, I subscribed to Debian project when I was studying it in 2006, seven, I think, and I'm still subscribed. So, you know, I just like to keep abreast of what's happening. I mean, a lot of it's technical stuff or this person's got a new key or whatever, but I, I don't care about all that. It's just interesting because it's so democratic. It's a duocracy, those who do decide, and it's the authority of the better argument. That's great. So it's Habermasian. And yeah, I respect it a lot. And Zach is a fantastic representative and it's been great. Sometimes you just click with people or whatever, like it's just fluke. We had similar interests and we don't have to sort of explain each other, explain what's going on and sort of we get where we're going and sometimes, you know, we're coming at some different angles and he does stuff. I have no clue what he does. He speaks my language. I don't need to speak his. <laughs> the right. very brief addendum to that, Debian is old, right? And it's kind of a dinosaur in today's world of open source. 
many of the people that get into open source today already knows that there is a business angle. When Debian started, there was no business angle. That was before in the success of open source in the business world. And so we have seen it coming before many other projects. And we have seen like people in Debian started being hired to work on specific projects. A big one has been, of course, Ubuntu, which was one of the very big distribution paid by a company based on top of that. And so we had seen those struggles before than many other projects. So I think that makes it a very interesting project to study in terms of the transition from volunteers to paid or no transition at all and keeping the two separate for what it's worth. Right. And Stefano, you have a lot of experience in open source in general. I mean, you've been a board member of the OSI. Are you the new director coming in? No, no, but that's a common mistake. That's Stefano Mafoli, and I've received personal messages for him and we are good friends, but no, that's another Stefano for region. Okay. But you also founded Software Heritage, which is the largest archive of publicly available software source code. Is that yeah. correct? Correct. Also different from GitHub. So we are an archive and not a development platform. So our Got mission it. is preserving in the very long term source code. So it's like essentially the internet archives for version control systems, which are publicly available, of course. So essentially we have all of GitHub, uh, but not only that. We have copies of GitLab, we have copies of Debian. As long as it is in source code for, we want to archive it for future generations. Love that. Okay, so both of you have a lot of experience in this field and came together, speak each other's languages, and we're given the opportunity to focus on, well, what's happening with open source? Who co-produces it? How is it going forward? What did you find in the report? So we worked with Love Musili, and she was a, an equal partner with us. And she's coming in it from a kind of systems, information systems, business management kind of perspective. And she really contributed a lot, particularly to the ethnography. Because so we did a couple of things. We looked at the patterns of contributions on GitHub. And the report kind of makes the point that, well, you know, Microsoft bought GitHub in 2018 and they're capitalizing on that investment and they're by far the, the largest contributor. But in fact, there's some stuff that we've done recently, which is not in the report, which is actually really interesting, which is in an article that's on the review right now. And that there's contribution territory. So we looked at the 20 top most contributed to repositories by firms. So, you know, this is a small sample. I mean, you know, GitHub is enormous. We just had 135 repos, but they were the most active. And so we found that, you know, I have the 20 top, there's 14 where either Google or Microsoft is ultra dominant and the other firm does not contribute at all. Or if it does, it's like three or five or 10. So it's just one dev doing it for fun or because whatever. And so what we say in this article is that there's a new type of good that's being produced. And we, you know, it's known as industrial public goods. And basically it's defined by a few key features. So Selective cooperation between firms. Firms don't cooperate in this community. They have very clear mandates about where people should work. And this blurring between volunteer and paid work. And we looked at the patterns of contribution. So it's been said before, for example, that volunteers keep contributing the same throughout the week, whereas paid people, they don't, they dips over the weekend, that sort of thing. So we verified those sorts of things. But we also found, you know, other aspects of the relationship between paid and volunteer work, like whether people start using, you know, because people can contribute using multiple emails. So that gives us an indication of when they contribute, how they contribute. So we looked at GitHub and then the other thing we did, we went to open source conferences and we looked at the discourses that are produced by employees of firms. And that gave us an insight into how these firms view themselves 
view the open source uh, market and basically trying to transform it and to justify this transformation by invoking new values that kind of challenge the traditional values of the open source market. So this is kind of a transitory period right now. Open source has been fully integrated into the IT industry. And now the IT industry is trying to convince other industrial sectors of the reliability and validity of using open source. So they focus on security issues, documentation. So the importance of conferences is that it was the only time when you're dealing with a volunteer workforce that you can have in the same room, firm people and the volunteers in the community. Now, these volunteers might be employed as well, but they're also volunteering. So how do you talk? How do you tell them the important stuff? So that's why conferences were important. So we have this kind of in-depth ethnography. And then we had the more sort of macro view of the GitHub analysis. We also looked at the media, the IT media, to see how the IT media represents this relationship, this co-production. And we found it's basically the same discourse as the firms, which is we're all one big community. Everybody's happy. It's great. It's wonderful. And of course, they never talk about issues such as data, such as uh, privacy, such as the cooptation or open source by software as a service problems or the cloud infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. So all these issues are completely swept on the carpet and in conferences with employees of big firms, they almost like data doesn't exist, like it's a taboo word. So we sort of got a snapshot of where the market, where the industries are, you know, the last couple of years. Yeah, if I had to highlight one thing, it would be this notion of we are one big community which I've always perceived as an activist for free software. That's not true. When you say that, you're usually trying to hide some sort of conflict that energy exists within a specific subpart of society. And what was exciting for me to see in this research work, both on the media angle and the ethnography angle at conferences, was indeed that we have verified that indeed the topics that big companies, small companies, or nonprofits of various kind talk about actually different depending on their respective interests. And so there is not only one community, there are different communities within free and open source software that have different interests. And we should not be afraid of saying that there are conflicts there and be sure we are aware of them when they exist. He makes a good point is that there's other actors that are very important in the foundations. And everybody knows there's two different main types of foundations and sort of 5016, which is a type of Linux foundation with sort of industrial consortia. And then the 501c3, which is more a traditional nonprofit, which so like GNOME or whatever. And they have, yeah, they have very different discourses. And, you, you know, we found a clear opposition between large firms and industrial consortia, Linux foundation type foundations on the one hand, and small firms and more activist and nonprofit foundations on the other. And they're projecting different visions of what open source is, what it should be. And they have different things matter. Different things are important for different employees. You know, like for employees of big firms, it's about making reliable, being convincing new partners, new industries that it's good. And for the smaller firm, they espouse views around privacy and autonomy and the sustainability. So there's a real, very clear division, which was fascinating to observe. It's interesting you say, Matthew, that everybody knows the difference between the two types of foundations, because I don't think that's true, at least in the tech side of the freedom of software community. In fact, that's another example in which we use in the ecosystem the word foundation to blur together two different things, one which are the charities and one which are the industry consortia that as we have found in this report, they actually talk about different things and probably have very different interests. Well, I was referring to the three of us. 
we all know. That's what no, I'm no, saying. I know you know. It's saying that maybe it could be another instance of trying to paper over differences. It's also interesting because Power One, Two, Three, Power One, Two, Six are American terms. So those foundations mean something else elsewhere in Europe. It means something else in China. It means something else. So I'm really interested. I mean, this report that you released, I'm interested in seeing the new paper come out, but the report itself, the co-production of open source software by volunteers and big tech firms is like 71 pages long. And so if I were to read it at that pace, it would take me a while even. I love that. And I love that at the end you talk about, well, we have to sort of tease out what does open source mean? Where is the ideology coming from? How are the firms talking? How are the volunteers talking? Could you tell me a bit more and maybe the listeners about any recommendations you make in this large report that you think are particularly worth making here again or saying, like, how can we change the environment to make sure that open source is better for everyone? The report is actually a physical thing. I don't know if you can see, I can send it to you. If you give me your address, we haven't been able to send it to anybody because we're in lockdown. I would love that. Which has been really frustrating because it's really cool a cover and you can't, it's all blurry, but you can't really tell. But anyway. So the reason I've got it in my hands is because I have to look at what we said. Sorry, it came out a little while ago. This report was really an opportunity to kind of put out there a few ideas around the digital commons. And one of the things that we did was we got a lot of comments from people in front because France has got this kind of traditional, critical, activist kind of vibe. And that was an opportunity to get those voices heard in the English-speaking world. And so there are people who make alternatives to create alternative systems to the, the digital services that are produced by the big tech. And we wanted to highlight them. Okay, just to summarize, we said basically, you know, people aren't aware that the big tech firms or the gap firm are appropriating free software. They don't know about software as a service. They don't know about cloud infrastructure. They don't know how that nullifies the GPL. Nobody knows about this. That's one thing that needs to be said. And then there should be a debate in free software communities about what's going on at the moment. There needs to be, hey guys, let's just maybe step back for a second and think about what's happening and what's actually going on. Another issue is that the value of the digital commons is not properly recognized in society. And that concerns open source, but it also concerns Wikipedia, for example, because Wikipedia is an amazing resource. I was telling Zach about it yesterday. You know, I'm doing a project with schools to develop fact-checking literacy. And the end result is you come across something that's weird, go to Wikipedia, check it out, you know, and look at the references. But teachers hate Wikipedia. They refuse to use it. There's a cultural problem. So I think there's a cultural issue in society that doesn't recognize the value of these community volunteer-based projects. It's still true that people hate Wikipedia like teachers because... I thought yeah. that have changed in the past 20 years. It has- well, they, they have the image of Wikipedia as it was in 2010, 2015, oh. when it was so. It's fascinating because as a university lecturer, I've got a course on the digital literacy, on media fact checking. We'll say, hey guys, what do you think about Wikipedia? Oh, we're not allowed to use it. Yeah, don't use it. So they've just been told, right? So where I'm getting at with this is that these resources, Wikipedia, they work completely free, of course. Open source, there's been this sort of unspoken contract between the fact that people work for fun and it's a vocation, it's a passion, but they can get a job and they get lifelong learning. So they get all these benefits. So that's kept it going. But where I'm going with this, and I think Zach sort of on the same way, like is that, well, maybe it's time that society and regulators in the States start recognizing the value of this digital infrastructure. And I put Wikipedia as digital infrastructure as well. That's being produced for the good of everybody. 
and that's being produced in a fantastic way. And so the way this happens is then, of course, the problem. Like, what does that mean? Like, does it mean we had a universal basic income, for example? That's one of the things we talk about. I don't particularly, you know, me think it means that, but it could be. What it means is that there should be some recognition that there are firms that are free riding, that are using the resource for that contributing. So there are alternatives. So what we need to do, basically, to sum it up, is we need to increase the social recognition of digital infrastructure, open source, Wikipedia. There needs to be better understanding of what it does and how good it is by the state, by society, by non-techy people. The tech people know, but everyone else is just... They vaguely know their iPhone works using something called Linux, but they don't really know what it is. So most people don't even know. But that's what makes the iPhone run. It's pretty amazing. To measure something else, yes. So one is... Basically, it's not a recommendation, but is we are hoping that this kind of reports can start a debate and raise awareness of various things. And one is free riding, which is a well-known notion in econometers that it's definitely happening with free software. And there is some free riding ongoing. And we all know that, well, it's well-known in other fields that free riding is only sustainable up to a point. So when it's no longer sustainable, you need to have some curation, the public good, which is behind it, which in this case is was what we, we could call the software commons, needs some curation to regulate free writing to be sustainable and useful for society as a whole. And the other part is that we have interviewed with our colleagues from Framasoft, which is this French-based organization that is providing federated services based on free software only, which provides alternatives to a lot of centralized services like the Google Docs suite or the Office 365 suite and so on and so forth, so that you can either self-host your solution for those problems or use one federated instance operated by some people that maybe you sustain with a donation or via other means. And these services are actually viable and actually help in a lot of the, with a lot of the issues that we have identified in reference. So this is a kind of but two things I would like to, to mention here. Maybe another one that I guess Matthew already touched upon is the role of researchers that are also participating in the sustainability of specific kinds of open source software and are completely left out of the debate on the sustainability of open source, especially in the US, if I must say. And they play a role. They are civil servants that contribute a lot to very important pieces of free software, for instance, related to AI, related to machine learning stuff, which is really cool right now and really important for industry. And they are not really seen for the value they give to that field. Yeah, and I agree with the, what Zach said. And uh, that's one of the things we try to highlight in the report as well, is the contribution of enterprises such as Framasoft, which is this French association. Yeah. So they propose alternatives to a lot of different things. I would say that they, it's a viable system for functional type things, like, you know, conferencing system or docs. It's not viable. I don't think it's attractive. It's, it's not possible when you're dealing with cultural products, like for example, YouTube, because it's based on trust. It's a federated system. So it's based on trust. You have to trust the people that you're connected to. And so with YouTube, you don't need, you don't have to trust and you get this infinite offer of content. So that in that, it doesn't work for everything. And yes, in terms of the researchers, we are actually continuing because we've done further collection of repositories on GitHub. And we're looking at the contribution of the researchers. So that's ongoing research that we're going to be keep doing next year. And it's also about changing the narrative about where innovation comes from, because the narrative is innovation is always driven by startups in Silicon Valley and the private enterprise, but it's just not true. There's other actors that play a very important role and it's important to push that. 
So just the same way that, you know, the narrative around open source is dominated by the such Linux Foundation, which pushed this case of community gibberish. And our report kind of pushes back against that by saying, well, actually, hmm, there's different, like I said, it's not one big happy family. There are different interests. There's a competition that's going on right there. So I love this report. I love it deeply because everything you're saying, I'm basically nodding along and I wish... I had an infinite amount of time to delve into each of these topics. Let me go to this question now. So this report was excellent. It focused on open source. It focused on figuring out how open source works and what it means and where the ideologies are coming from and who are the main actors and how do we do things like have recognition for researchers. I love that you call researchers civil servants. That's never something that an American would say about an academic researcher because civil servant means you work for the post office or something. Whereas like thinking of them as servants of the general society, of course, we should recognize and think that they are wonderful people and praise them accordingly and maybe remunerate them for their efforts. If we put open source to the side, this is the digital infrastructure fund. A digital infrastructure is larger than open source. I like that you said Wikipedia, you count as digital infrastructure. I agree with that. I use it every single day. I think it's one of the most wonderful resources that humanity has in general. I'm curious going forward, do you have any ideas for how digital infrastructure could be improved? What narratives are going on there, which you may want to look at in future research? And is there any digital infrastructure things that you didn't cover in this report that you think would be very interesting to do so that say don't involve open source? So I, I guess the point is that what in counting your definition of open source, I think open data is another big one, which might or might not be part of what you was what you were trying to do with open source, but that's not a big one. And it's an important one in the sense that data can actually be produced by a number of different actors. And whether we allow data to be owned and alienated from the public or not, it's a big discussion, which will have an impact on what you're saying. So the, the public availability of data can unleash a lot of innovation. So it can be supported or not by public means and by private means. But for instance, when it is supported by public needs, do we allow the resulting data produced from those data to be, for instance, alienated by specific companies and not re-release the public? So you see where we're going, right? So the equivalent of copyleft of like for data, that's going to be another big one. And it's totally part of what we might call digital infrastructure. For me, I'd like to relate this to the evolution of the labor market and the idea that with automation, there's lots of jobs that are going to be lost. There's going to be huge transformation, like, you know, any kind of job that's repetitive is a risk. So I guess there should be some sort of thinking a little bit about how much we work, what we do. A lot of the work that's done for digital infrastructure like Wikipedia or open source, people do it because they love it, because it's fun, it gets recognition from the peers, it's cool. So that's the sort of work that's nice. It's not boring work. And so it should be possibly increased and maybe there should be some support to do more of that sort of work and less of the boring work that is going to disappearing more and more anyway. So I think, you know, that's another thing that we want to try and encourage is discussions around that and encourage discussions about that, particularly in the open source community, because they have a lot of power, really. They don't know they have a power because they don't think of themselves as a political subject. So one of the things we want to do next year, we want to read, because we actually, our second report, which will be coming out in November, will be the 2016 survey that we did of Debian. And it's going to have a nice layout like this, and it's going to look professional. And, and then next year, we're going to do a follow-up. And we're going to 
shared some of the same notes in terms of how many firms and that, you know, they'll give us a nice snapshot five years later. But we also want to start talking about those sorts of issues, about social recognition, about what kind of living system would you want? Because if this starts being this debate within the open source community, it could have a ripple effect. I'm not imagining any giant changes, but developers are in a powerful position because they have skills that firms want. And so they're in position to get things. And so in any case, nobody else is doing this. So if somebody has to, so we might as well do it. I like that you bring it back to labor markets. I read a really good post the other day, which I'll link in the show notes about how burnout, which is one of the most common topics I hear in open source, is really a corporate issue. Because if you're asking people to do work on their weekends and asking people to do work on their nights, and then they get tired because there's an endless amount of work and they can't deal with it, maybe we should just pay those people to work a sane amount of hours instead of working insane amount of hours. And it shouldn't be part of your resume that you have to work on open source all the time. And you should just do work that you think is fun and then stop and maybe go outside and have a nap. So these debates are actually happening in the open source community because what's interesting is that one of the other guys that was a grantee in 2019 is another Debian developer. And he had discussion with Zach around this issue of labor and he ran for the DPL, for the Debian Project Leader in 2020. And one of his proposals was that if people want to make a living off Debian, they should like, so there should be salaries in Debian. You know, maybe I'm not representing it exactly and Zach would probably correct me, but there's also people in Debian who've set up businesses, which never used to happen. Like we were not allowed to do that five, 10 years ago, but now they've started doing this sort of thing. So there's evolutions as well within the projects, this idea that, hey, you know, we're just going to be living off air and code and we're just brilliant coders and we don't need to think about money because that's beneath us. There's a recognition that actually could be a little bit exclusionary because who could participate if you need to have the social support, the skills to work for free? It's not everybody who can do that. So those sorts of issues are linked as well, those access issues. I know there's a lot of discussions in the digital infrastructure world around gender, you know, around the, in this project, in this grant project, that's one of the big issues. And I think that's right, but there's, it's not just about gender, it's about you know, education and income and those barriers. So I think those issues are great. And it's important that the dependencies of starting to talk about these things. And if I may, when you say, Richard, that those people should be paid, yes. And there's also a question, who should be paying them? Because I had the pressure of the answer, invariably, we're going to is companies should be paying them. And maybe not only companies, if they're producing important public good, maybe it's yeah. right to have those people funded by other means as well. That's a really cool point, actually, which is the miscalculation of states. Because I'm not to go at the American state, because, you know, America, obviously, it's a free enterprise, that's it. But in Europe, there is a tradition of states getting involved. And they only saw open source as a way to save money. And so when there's tenders for something, they really favored firms that would use open source products, but not the projects themselves. And they did not give them the means to develop, to compete properly with firms. That being said, there are some entities in France and across Europe that use open source products. I will find a thing that we will hear, which is like the, the military police that runs the non-urban areas of France. They were using some open source software for them. But in general, it hasn't been supported. And I think that's where we're going as well. It's that the state should start paying attention, being a bit more serious about supporting it. I agree with that. And I think the state has started to pick up 
there was just a large E report that came out from the EC a couple of weeks ago that said we should build mm-hmm. corporate OSPOs and, you know, we should have a network of open source program offices and I'll be going to Paris in a couple of weeks. That was a conference with the city of Paris, which uses new test, which is an open source platform. And so there's more things getting towards that way, but there's still not with the general public and your average person on the street doesn't know what open source is and maybe shouldn't have to know. I don't have to know about sewer systems to use the sewer. So all these sorts of things. However, that is about where we are getting for time. This has been really fascinating. Before I go, I have to ask the final question. Then we'll have a couple more questions, which are smaller. But the final question, which is, what is digital infrastructure to you? Could you define it for me in your own words? So, Matthew, what is digital infrastructure? Well, I go by the canon, the Nadia, Ekbal, and her definition. It's the roads and bridges of the Julie Connell. But it's also Wikipedia. Wikipedia is more symbolic power, more symbolic tools. So I think it's infrastructure that's built by and for the people. It's reliable, it's peer-reviewed, and it's invisible. So that's how I define it. Everyone has different answers to this question. So there is no canon, but I can see where you're coming from there. Stefano? For me, it's about building blocks. It can be data, it can be software, it can be services that are used to build other services, be them digital or not, because sometimes you have digital blocks that are used to build non-digital stuff for the population at large. That would be my destination. And of course, not all of it is necessarily open, but I stand behind the sign that the open ones, the open building blocks are much better for all sorts of reasons than the non-open blocks for building digital, for building other things. Awesome. Building blocks, roads and bridges, words we've heard before, but in new light. Thank you both so much. For our listeners who are curious to find out more, I've dropped a link to the report in the show notes. Matthew O'Neill, where can people find you and your work on the web? Well, I'm maintaining the journal pre-production, which is at preproduction.net for 10 years. And this journal is coming to an end. We're having our last issue come out next month. It's called Transition. And I've launched with a think tank called the Digital Commons Policy Council, which is publishing this report. We'll be publishing other reports. And so that's where I'll be sort of, apart from my academic work, the interesting thing for me is always been to mix the kind of activist bit with research. That was the whole point of the journal pre-production because it came out of their activist circles in Germany and England. And the Digital Commons Policy Council has a similar kind aims to have it, but with a more professional, with a more slick look, so it can reach broader audiences than draw pre-production, which is very low budget, do it yourself. So yeah, that's where I live, the Digital Commons Policy Council, dcpc.info, or I can't remember, I think that's it, I'll let you know. The website will be released in November as well, it's not, it's been ready for a few months, but we're waiting to release it for the second report. So you can follow up with him in the meantime by Googling his name and finding him there. We'll also have a link in the show notes to his academic website. And info will come out eventually. And I'm on Twitter, at Matthew O'Neill. At Matthew O'Neill on Twitter. Thank you. Yeah. Stefano? So my whole page is upsilon.cc, U-P-S-I-L-O-N.cc. And I'm also available on Mastodon and on Twitter as well. Mastodon, of course, is the Federated Network. Thanks for bringing up Federated Networks again. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. I really love this report. For any listeners who haven't had a chance to look at it, it is very beautiful. Please get in contact with Matthew and Sebno to try to get a physical copy because it did look, while blurry on Zoom because of the background, very nice. And I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. 
thank you both so much. Congratulations on getting the grants in the first place and then doing such awesome work with it. And thank you for coming on this podcast. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for having us.